You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Welcome to episode 15 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Sex Positivism. I'm Lisa Cordles, and with me today are Victoria Farmer and Marie Haas. Hello, Victoria and Marie. Hi. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Well, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any new listeners to the program. We'll go ahead and start with Victoria. Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am a regular panelist here at the CFP. I am a an adjunct instructor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I teach uh, English and social sciences. And I'm very excited that in the spring I am teaching for the second time uh, our school's junior and senior um, seminar on human sexuality. So I'll I'll probably talk um, more about that course today. And uh, stuff going on with me, um, I... I'm working on book proposals. I'm trying to shop my uh, dissertation around to some publishers. So uh, book proposals are my life right now. And that's pretty much me. Um, okay. Hi, I, I, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, go ahead, Marie. <laughs> sorry. Um, okay. Hi, I'm Marie Haas, and I'm a PhD student at Florida State University. Uh, studying Renaissance literature. This semester I've been teaching women in literature, and next semester I'll again teach women in literature um, with focus on the 18th and 19th century, in that case, rather than the Renaissance. And I'm a regular panelist on this podcast. Okay, thank you. And I'm Lisa Cordles, and I'm also a regular panelist on this podcast. And um, I used to teach at Crown College with Victoria, and that's how I met her and all of the lovely ladies for the podcast. And right now I am wrapping up my novel, and so Victoria was talking about book proposals being her life. Uh, Rejections and rewriting are my life. So I'm in the process of doing all of that and hopefully to be published in 2015 with my first novel. And I live in Waconia, Minnesota with my husband, Mark, and my two daughters, Okay, uh, let's just move into some background of why this show I thought was very important and timely to do. Uh, Well, first of all, um, I just feel like with the book coming out, Fifty Shades of Grey, and also with the film release coming out, um, which I thought was really interesting that there was actually a countdown on a radio station to the preview for the movie. Not the movie itself, but to the preview for the movie of Fifty Shades of Grey. I don't know if I've ever heard of that before, where people are just dying to see the preview. And that got me thinking about what does sex and sexuality mean uh, in our culture today, right now? And I don't know how many times I've had, you know, women I interact with, you know, women I go to church with, or just women in general I interact with who say, oh, I love that book. You know, I love all of that. And I think to myself, wow, that's really interesting. Um, so I 
sadly had to tragically uh, sit down and actually read the book, uh, which I did do. Um, and it's, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I'll never get those moments back, but um, it certainly got people in our culture talking about sex. And I thought it would be wonderful for us as Christian feminists to discuss uh, what we think about sex and what that means. And so that's sort of the birthing of this particular show. And uh, yes, it is a big topic. So after you listen to this podcast, if there are things that you wanted us to touch on or would like us to do another show on, um, I'm all for that. I'm interested in hearing that. But I do think it's important for us to be talking about uh, sex and sexuality as Christian feminists. And to get us started, I thought I'd have Victoria, because of her work with students and just teaching um, on this topic in a Christian environment, uh, start with just some definitions for those who maybe don't know what sex positivi positivism is. So Victoria, if you could go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, so Lisa has asked me today to talk about um, sex positivism and also its inverse sex negativism. Um, so sex positivism first. Um, this is primarily a philosophy of sexuality that's usually associated um, in, in its current iteration with third wave feminism. Uh, we've talked about the third wave just a bit um, on an earlier episode of this show, but some, some review. Uh, the third wave begins sometime around the mid-1980s. Um, depending on who you ask, it's still going on. Um, we mention the third wave in the context of the riot girl movement, um, which is a, a division of the third wave. Sex positivism shares some DNA with the riot girl movement. Um, one way in which it does that is that it's closely connected to pop cultural expression um, and issues of reclamation, but where Riot Girl is about extending the second wave um, ideology that the personal is political into pretty much all facets of culture. Sex positivism is much narrower. It's mostly just about physical sexual expression. Uh, the central idea within sex positivism is that there is a sexual double standard that privileges men. The idea is that men are pretty much allowed to have sex um, with whomever they want, however they want, um, with the, the caveat in place um, that this is a pretty um, heteronormative movement, largely, um, as, it, as it's mainstream expressed. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about um, heterosexual relationships primarily here. Um, but Generally, men can have sex however they want, with whomever they want, without, largely without, an attached social stigma. Um, stuff like no strings attached sex is fine, and in some cases expected if you're a man, whereas um, the, the inverse is not true if you're a woman. Um, or the same is not true, rather, if you're a woman. Uh, if you... If a woman has sex like a man, sex positivism tells us, um, she's not treated the same way. She's um, called a tramp or a slut or any other uh, variety of names. And so sex-positive feminists are pushing against this sociosexual double standard in a variety of ways. Um, this type of feminism is sometimes called sex in the city feminism. Uh, Carrie Bradshaw has a, a big speech about how she wants to have sex like a man without the repercussions. 
some of the ways that sex-positive feminists try to call out and push against this double standard is by um, a series of reclamations, reclamation of events, of words, and of actions typically associated with the sexual objectification of women. Um, some examples of this, young women wearing um, Girls Gone Wild t-shirts or participating in Girls Gone Wild videos, um, necklaces and hats and t-shirts and bags and everything that exists with the Playboy bunny symbol on it, um, wearing these things as, um, as a message of empowerment or a symbol of, of sexual freedom. Um, also, this is, is where the idea of feminist porn comes into the conversation. Um, can feminist porn exist? What does it look like? Um, is it different than more male-centered porn? These kinds of things. Um, there's also some linguistic uh, reclamation going on in this movement. Um, women using words like whore and slut as, as terms of friendship and endearment also have roots in sex-positive feminism. Bree, would you like to add a little bit to that? Uh, yeah, going off a little bit of um, on what Victoria was saying about the double standard about sexual behavior um, that sex positivism is reacting to and arguing against. Um, a, a part of that too, uh, and that Victoria has pointed out a little bit, is um, how sex positivism places emphasis on female sexual pleasure um, is something that's um, valuable in its own right, and that is as valuable as male sexual pleasure, which, you know, should go without saying, but that um, there's this long history of placing a primacy on the male sexual ple pleasure and the male sexual experience um, that, of course, uh, feminism reacts against and that sex positivism particularly reacts against in emphasizing female sexual pleasure. Um, and, I mean, this, of course, doesn't have its origins in just in the sex positivism movement of the, the 1980s, particularly, but um, is in that movement coming out of the work that has done previously in recognizing first even the existence of female sexual pleasure um, and then the nature of female sexual pleasure. So, um, for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I attended... Um, an exhibition at the Welcome Collection in London, where they, they have a special exhibition going now called the Institute of Sexology. And some of the things they had on display were some of the papers uh, of Marie Stokes, who is a very uh, influential figure in um, creating this recognition that women can have sexual pleasure and that this should be something that, um, you know, can be a goal in having sex um, to create sexual pleasure for women as well as for men. Um, so her, her sex manual, Married Love, was very contra controversial for that reason. And this was um, way back in, in the first part of uh, the 20th century, so preceding the sex-positive movement by, by a good bit. Um, and then another influential figure later in recognizing nature uh, as well as the existence of female sexual pleasure would be um, Anne Cote, whose uh, 1970 essay, The Myth of Vaginal Orgasm, 
um, sort of refined uh, some of these uh, views of uh, female orgasm that were really based in subordinating female pleasure to male pleasure and uh, at the same time of viewing women as sort of subordinate to men in general and unable to experience sexual pleasure if they're not fulfilling their what, what Freud would think of as their proper role as, as women. Um, so these um, kinds of recognitions of the existence of sexual pleasure for women and the value of uh, that pleasure as a goal in sex goes into the sex positive movement as well. Um, and it's coming out of uh, the, the, the history of um, the, that, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> it's coming out of that recognition in the long history of feminism. Um, and since you mentioned Fifty Shades of Grey, um, I thought I would mention that that was part of uh, my reaction to that book as as a piece of well, fan fiction that became uh, such an influential novel that um, that is sort of a positive aspect of it for me and that it goes along with sex positivism and um, with these figures like Marie Stopes and Ann Cope who, uh, in emphasizing um, female sexual pleasure as a positive goal and as something to be celebrated, um, and I mean, that's no doubt one reason that the book is so popular and that it's um, so well read in your church circles as well, Lisa. Um, so that, that's a positive aspect of the Fifty Shades um, phenomenon for me, that it's uh, accompanying that recognition. Yeah, I would say that for me, the most positive thing that's come out of its phenomenon, it, it's certainly not the writing. We can all agree on that, right? It's not the quality of the author's writing. Um, no, nope. but writing's terrible. Yeah, real, writing's real terrible. terrible. It's bad. No, I, yeah, I recognize that, of course. But at the same time, I think part of the, the pleasure of the Fifty Shades text, too, is this fantasy of sudden fame through uh, writing a piece of fan fiction and um and having it be catapulted to the top of a bestseller list. Yeah, um, it's, and it's, as far as fan fiction goes, the writing is, I mean, there, there's better and there's worse. <laughs> so oh, that's not frightening. Really... Okay. All right. Um, but I do agree with you on one thing that, um, and that's what sort of birthed this episode is that a lot of good conversations are happening. I think in all kinds of different circles because of the phenomenon. And I do think that's a good thing. Um, when I was teaching, you know, I constantly would think about where are those teachable moments? And I think there are these, you know, instructional, maybe teachable is not the right word, but there's definitely moments where you're given this opportunity to talk about what you think, um, you know, about these issues as a Christian woman or a woman of faith or however you identify yourself. And just from a theological perspective um, and a feminist theological perspective, the whole concept of the male gaze has exploded as far as doing exegetical work. Um, in fact, I was assigned to write a paper just from that point of view, the male gaze. And it's really interesting when you take just a piece of what we're talking about today and apply it to exegesis and that sort of work and come to conclusions. It's very interesting to then look at the Bible and see how often the male gaze is actually present and how that does affect our interpretation and our reading of particular stories. Um, 
I wrote on Hagar and the Book of Ruth and um, the story of Hagar, obviously, and the Book of Ruth. And, you know, the male gaze is definitely present there. And that's not something I would have noticed if not for the work of a lot of the people that we've mentioned already. Um, and so as far as this whole idea of sex positivism, sex negativism, I think some really good conversations are taking place that should be taking place. And so if, I, if I'm going to celebrate anything about the book, and of course the movie coming out is just going to be monstrously huge. It's only going to spread the phenomenon. I think it is giving a platform where women can, of faith and not of, you know, whatever can come together and talk about what it means to us as, as women of God or of theology as well. So I do agree with you on that, Marie. I think there is some good stuff coming out of it as well. Um, I want to just quickly uh, move into our section on a couple of articles that are on this issue that have uh, made the the rounds, I guess, through uh, online discussions. I'm going to end with uh, a book called Christian Perspectives on Sex and Pornography. I thought we'd start with the articles first. Um, so, Victoria, if you could uh, talk about the article uh, regarding I'm a sex negativist, I think is what she said, called herself. If you could just summarize that quick and just give us your, your thoughts. Yeah, sure. Um, this is an article that was originally posted on exojane.com, um, which is, is a, a pretty big force in, in the feminist blogosphere these days. Um, Exogene is a project um, that was originally, I'm not sure if it is now, um, under the publishing umbrella of Jane Pratt, who, um, who worked with Jane Magazine um, when it was a print magazine in the 90s, um, and they were a sort of um, a, a little bit smarter than something like Cosmo, a little bit more um, politically involved, but, but still, um, still sexy and brash and kind of... Um, some swearing and you know it's it's a kind of naughty magazine um and naughty brand even though it's it's a feminist informed one um exo jane is is the newest um publication under that umbrella and it, it is online um and the article is called uh i'm a sex negative feminist and the author um basically says that she identifies as sex negative on purpose to to get people talking because she thinks um, that there are some cultural problems with sex positivism. Um, chief among them, she says, sex positivism has turned into um, you can't criticize anything about sex. That um, she she criticizes the idea that culturally we just think that as long as there are um, consenting adults. Uh, however many people involved, as long as those people are consenting adults, then anything goes, whatever, no, no discussion, um, whatever you do in your bedroom is your business and nobody's allowed to criticize it. Um, so she, she's objecting to sex positivism kind of as a sexual ethic. Um, and she says that um, basically that the personal is political has, has gone away, um, that, that we should still think about having sex as politically important and as having political implications and ramifications for our lives. Um, here's one really salient quote that I thought was important and that sort of is the, is the main thesis of the article. Um, she, she talks about what, um, what sex 
positivism um, and what sex negativism means and doesn't mean, uh, what it does in fact mean is that the way you is not private, apolitical, or outside the realm of critique. Sex does not happen in a vacuum immune to outside structural influences. In fact, it can and does replicate inescapable systems of power and dominance. Being sex negative means that acknowledging that sex and kink have nothing intrinsically good or positive about them, in direct contrast to sex-positive feminists, many of whom argue that sex is an inherent good and that less charitable opinions towards sex are the results of a poisonous Prudish society. Um, and then she goes on to talk about um, pro-porn and, and anti-porn feminists um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, that there are these sex wars, as she calls them. Um, people in the pro-porn movement are, are fighting with people in the anti-porn movement. 30 years after the sex wars, she says, sex positivity has emerged as the default setting for mainstream feminism, with anti-porn feminism largely relegated to the margins and more nuanced positions often completely elided and erased. So um, I think what she is arguing for and what she's labeling as sex negativity is really just um, a, a desire for more nuanced discussion. She wants um, there to be more options than just sex positivity, and she wants sex positivity itself to be um, to be less broadly articulated. She wants sex to be open to social and political critique, um, which honestly sounds great to me. I don't um, I don't call myself sex negative. Um, I, I'm not sure I would go that far, but I, I definitely agree that because sex is what we as, as sociologists call, um, the master role in our society, because one of the first things we label people as is as heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual or asexual or whatever, um, sex, you know, takes a really important place in the way we define ourselves as people and as communities, um, I, I do think that there is a degree to which we as a society have stopped questioning how we have sex and, and what it means and how it affects us. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm pretty on board with this, this article's central thesis. What about you guys? Well, I would have to agree with you, Victoria, in the idea uh, and, and agreeing with the article that there's a need to be sex critical, which is a term she uses near the end of the article. Um, though, like you, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that necessarily uh, being sex critical is in and of itself being sex negative. Um, so there should definitely be space for this um, self uh, critique of how sexual practice fits into the larger structures of patriarchy and dominance and depression. Um, and it shouldn't be that sexual actions are just off limits and uh, by default neutral and natural and not available for criticism. So there's that. I definitely agree with that. Um, though I think that um, in some ways this article might be overlooking a little bit of what you were talking about earlier with the origins of the sex positive movement um, in that that movement is emerging from 
uh, such a, a long history of the shaming of women for having a sexual existence in the first place. Um, and that, that would be something we definitely don't want to reinscribe and reinscribe in claiming a sex negative approach. Um, I think that would be sort of the danger of, of taking that. Uh, approach too much to heart, um, but definitely being sex critical, I think would, mo- most everybody would agree that, that that would be a positive thing to pursue. Um, and I also think that this article <laughs> had some positive points in, um, in the, the observation that um, there are people who, who can be sort of left out of the discourse in a sex positive discussion that places too much sort of celebration and emphasis on um, sexual pursuits and sexual pleasures as themselves a core aspect of identity without which a person cannot be fully human. Um, And I mean, that, of course, for one thing, uh, leaves out asexual people who are, you know, definitely fully human, (laughs) even though uh, not experiencing um, this need um, for sexual pursuits in as strong a way as, as some others. Um, and it can also, uh, there's the danger in sorts of discourses of creating the idea that uh, if a person, if uh, a woman, for example, is um, not really as uh, interested in sexual pleasure and sexual activities as this pinnacle of human desires and pursuits that that it sort of almost seems to be implied to be in some cases in sex positive discourse, um, then there's something wrong. There's something uh, damaged or something lacking. Um, And that going back to 50 shades of gray again, um, is uh, something that you could see as sort of a negative aspect in some ways of that text in that, uh, with Anastasia in Fifty Shades of Grey, you have this sex goddess fantasy that she just orgasms at the drop of a hat. You know, it's in her first sexual experience, she has the most amazing orgasm ever, and she continues to do so throughout the book, uh, you know, regularly about every 30 pages. Um, so, I mean, of course, that's the appeal of why you want to be reading the text so that you would. Um, be, you know, experiencing this kinds of uh, sexual fulfillment through Anastasia's experiences. Um, but at the same time, her <laughs> sort of sexual facility and the celebration of that in the text um, goes along with that kind of idea that you can't be fully human or not a fully sexually realized human woman um, if you are not um, sort of able to experience this pleasure in such an instantaneous and um, easy way. Um, So that, I think, is something that that this article is pointing out as well. It can can come out of some kinds of sex-positive discourse. But I wouldn't think that that's really uh, an ingrained characteristic of the movement. It's just something that can be um, unintentionally overemphasized, perhaps. 
I think that's a really great point that that if um, if we sort of go to the most extreme end of the movement, all we're doing is just creating another impossible cultural standard that women have to live up to. Like it's it's not enough to just value female pleasure, but now like we all have to be amazingly skilled, powerful sex goddesses all the time. It's it's just another kind of I'm better than you if impossible standard yeah yeah and i i think that segues really well to a quote from the article that i i wanted marie to dive into a little bit more so i'll just read uh, that quote you're kind of talking about it it says we have become an anxious nation forever wondering if we're having enough sex or good enough sex uh what if our orgasms really aren't right on the money never have so many americans worried so much about whether they really even want sex at all. And I think that as, as we've been talking, I think that that is very on point. And this is from the article that I'm going to have Marie talk about right now that I just read from, but um, I think it comes out of these, these movements and, and these, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of conversation uh, about sex and, and, and uh, are we supposed to then have it all like as women are we supposed to like victoria said be these anastasia like goddesses who try everything and you know not only in the trial stages of these you know sexual awakenings we're also having all of this pleasure as well and does that set up some sort of standard that is just completely unattainable uh for any human being (laughs) who doesn't jump out of the pages of fiction um, so I'm just going to segue over to Marie for, for this article now. Yeah, and thanks for reading that quote, Lisa, because that's actually uh, what was making me think about that in approaching um, the article that Victoria talked about. Um, so the article that I read is titled, Jesus Loves You and Your Orgasm, and it's by Louis Bayard, and it's a, a, a 2008 article in Salon. And basically the article is um, summarizing some of the main points of the 2008 book Sex in Crisis by Dagmar Herzog, uh, with Bayard adding a few of his thoughts along the way. Um, so in this book, uh, Herzog, uh, like Lisa, you pointed out with that quote, um, claims that we've entered a state of sexual anxiety, um, worrying about if we have enough sex or good enough sex. Um, and it's a kind of, an, she says, a kind of a sexual revolution, um, and Bayard uh, terms it a devolution going off of her work. Um, but Herzog's main point in the book seems to be this connection of um, this sex anxiety, uh, not only to the kind of orgasm imperative um, that we've mentioned, but uh, specifically to liberal rhetoric being used for conservative ends by the religious right, uh, which um, is her main topic. Um, And in... And talking about the ways in which liberal rhetoric has been co-opted to promote a sexual conservatism, um, this article or Bayard's uh, 
addressing of Dagmar uh, Herzog's work reminded me strongly of the recent Atlantic article by Emma Green called um, The Warrior Wise of Evangelical Christianity that raised a lot of the same points about some of the more dismaying aspects of purity culture's approaches to, to sex and sexuality. Um, some of the examples that Herzog addresses in her book and that Bayard summarizes um, is how the the rhetoric that condemns uh, sex work and pornography as demeaning the value of women um, has been used in some cases uh, on the right to stop um, sort of AIDS relief for sex workers in developing countries, which was a negative outcome. Um, other examples would be how the, the positive descriptions of orgasms in um, conservative Christian marriage manuals are being used to promote this kind of pop monogamy of marriage. Um, but, but it's specifically this heterosexual marriage and <laughs> a hot monogamy that exists in contrast with all the other people who are supposed to be um, sexually inactive so that um, this marital sex can be hot. Um, and this celebration of sex or this seeming celebration of sex is then uh, being used to limit it and to control it in many ways. Another example that's discussed in the article is uh, the abstinence-only sex ed programs um, that are predicated on the idea that um, if you if you have sex, then you are uh, if you have sex before being married or outside of marriage, then you are damaged goods that um, make you unpalatable for a potential partner in marriage. And uh, Bayard recounts from Herzog this harrowing classroom exercise in which um, boys and girls chew uh, these cheese-flavored snacks, spit out the water called bodily fluids into a cup. All this spit is collected into a pitcher, and it's opposed to this pitcher of pure water labeled pure fluids, and they have to choose which one, which pitcher they want to pour from to uh, choose their future spouse. Um, so, yeah, that just, that's just sort of horrifying. I don't even know <laughs> where to, what to say about that exactly. Um, but it's just one of the examples from the article of uh, things that Herzog brings up is, is the damaging effects of um, some of this rhetoric that she's criticizing. At the end of the article... Bayard adds some of his own thoughts, um, but I found it a little confusing what what his ultimate conclusion seemed to be. Um, he seems to be, on the one hand, calling for responsible parenting, which is always good, um, but on the other hand, seems to think that responsible parenting is opposed to sex positivism in some way, but which I'm not sure it necessarily is. Um, but what are what are your thoughts on this piece? Uh, first, I I thought that particularly its um, description of abstinence only 
Um, object lessons and policies was unfortunately incredibly accurate. Um, I experienced a, a youth group lesson when I was, I guess, about 14 or 15, where um, the youth minister gave us um, these lollipops. I, I remember very vividly that they were heart-shaped, so some sort of ridiculous irony symbolism there. Um, it was all girls in the room. I don't know what lesson the boys were getting at that time. So a room full of preteen and teenage girls gives us these heart-shaped lollipops. Um, it tells us that, that we can start eating them, and uh, and so we do, because candy. And she starts talking about um, sex being from God and, and for... Um, for the confines of marriage, that, that God has blessed marital sex, um, that, that sex feels good and that it draws you closer to your partner and it's really great and divinely inspired and we should wait. Um, you know, very well-meaning discussion, I think, but, um, not terribly well executed. And then, uh, she, she gets back to, um, gets back to the issue of the lollipops and says that she wants us to take them out of our mouths now and that we should all try to put the wrappers back on. And of course we can't because they're sticky and we have been eating them. And she says, um, when you have sex before you get married, uh, you are like this fouled lollipop. And I remember that she used the word fouled because who says that? Um, and I, I got very upset, um, for, for, first thing, I, I knew that there were young women in that room who were not virgins, and I thought, how must they be feeling in this moment to be told from a place of authority that they are lesser people now, um, you know, that, that they have less to bring to a marriage now. Um, so I, I got up and I walked out. I, I think I hid in the bathroom um, for, for the rest of the meeting. Um, and, and I, I didn't have the language or, or the kind of philosophy of thought yet to articulate why I was so upset and why I objected so much to that message being delivered in that way. Cause I was, I was only, um, you know, very young and I was sort of a, a, a baby feminist at that time. Didn't even, you know, know to call myself one yet. Um, but I just remember being so angry and, and knowing at the core of me that like, this was wrong and this was the wrong way to talk to people and this was the wrong way to address this issue. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that part of the article that some of those abstinence only object lessons are ridiculous and, and not the way to go about this. That's really a scary experience. Oh, and I should have said earlier that the connection between these abstinence only, uh, programs and the use of sex, seemingly sex positive rhetoric, in order to pr promote uh, conservatism uh, as evidenced in these programs is um, that uh, abstinence as well as the uh, heterosexuality are both uh, held forth as these prerequisites for later enjoying the best sex ever, better than any sex you could have otherwise. Um, and so it's, it's part of that seemingly sex positive rhetoric that's being used and yet the uh, the way that it's being put into action in, in the case of exercises like um, the, the cheese snack exercise or the one you've just described is anything but sex positive and is uh, reinforcing um, that shame surrounding sex and sexuality. 
Yeah, I just thought the article, first of all, touched on uh, a couple of really good points regarding how sex positive positivism can be almost used as um, a scare tactic and that it, from the right wing, as, as they called it in the article, which I think is what's happening. I actually had the opportunity to attend a hot monogamy seminar for women only, which I thought was weird, but it was just for us women. And I did, I did go to that. And there was a lot of this, you know, you're, you guys are all married women here. And so that means you guys can do whatever you want and explore sexually. There's no boundaries. There's, you know, his body belongs to you and your body belongs to him. And I thought, okay, you know, and then, um, of course the segue is for the unmarried women in the room. It's an abstinence speech. Like, you won't have good sex if you don't follow these particular rules. And the article brought that up, you know, the rules of how this all is supposed to work. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting that even in kind of the blogosphere world, um, these issues are being talked about from all these different perspectives. And on that note, I want to move to a, more of a theological perspective, which um, I just wanted us to just briefly talk about any quotes or anything we really liked about the chapter? It was chapter four, I believe, uh, perspectives on, sorry, I will give the exact title. <laughs> I just have to scroll back up because I have my quote ready. Feminism and sexual equality, which is a big part of this as well. Um, as far as uh, feminist theological discussion, is there such a thing as sexual equality in the Bible? Now, that's a huge question. And then you talk about Old Testament, uh, the sexuality of women versus New Testament. Is there an equality that uh, Jesus advocates for um, is, that is missing in the Old Testament, that sort of thing? And so a lot of these um, theolo uh, theology, uh, does theological discussions sort of come out of this sex positive, posi positivism movement. I'm sorry, it's really hard for me to say that word. But um, it's chapter four. Uh, feminism and sexual equality, and I thought it had a lot of good stuff in it regarding some of the issues we've been touching on that are kind of coming into popular culture. So if you guys just want to pick, I'll start with Victoria, if you just want to pick one quote or one piece that you really liked, or maybe one author that was mentioned in this, because a lot of authors were cited and mentioned in this particular chapter, if there's something you just want to point out to our listeners that is worth pursuing a little further um, We'll go ahead and do that. Uh, Victoria, you want to go ahead and start? Yes. Uh, so first of all, um, the chapter was a, a little tough for me to get into because it, it seemed like, and, and this I think because of his target audience is probably a valid assumption, but it, it seemed like the author was starting from an assumption that um, Christianity and feminism are, are incompatible, and, and that is, of course, everyone who is listening to the show knows, um, not an assumption that I or that we as a podcast start with. So it was, it was a little hard for me to kind of put myself um, – in, in the author's perspective in the first couple pages. Um, but I really did appreciate that eventually he said, there are some things that, um, that a general Christian audience can learn from feminist perspectives on um, sexuality and, and the nature of the erotic um, that are important and that can, um, can sort of resonate with, with general Christian messages. And one of those, the one that seemed um, most kind of central and important to me, is uh, that good sex 
is and should be about friendship. Um, uh, there, there's a quote that says, good sex is about equality and friendship. And after that quote goes on to say um, that the emotional side of sexuality has often been marginalized and degraded primarily um, because it's, it's gendered feminine, that when we think of sex socially, we think about physicality more than we think about emotion. So I really appreciated that someone from a Christian perspective was saying, let's kind of bridge the gap between the stereotypically feminine emotional and the stereotypically masculine physical, and, and let's... Um, Let's recognize that both that partners of both genders can bring both things to the table. Um, so I, I liked hearing that um, nuance come from a Christian perspective. Yeah, and they are uh, the book is quoting um, another book actually in the section you like. This is also one of my favorite quotes, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. The book that it's quoted from is in. Uh, it's in Touching Our Strength, the Erotic as Power and the Love of God uh, by feminist theologian Carter Hayward. And there's a couple of quotes. Our sexualities are, are our embodied yearning to express a relational mutuality, um, act sexually only in mutual relationships. And then uh, the quote goes on, good sex is based on friendship and involves lovers who are committed gently, patiently, and playfully to calling one another and to being touched uh, into being and touching one another into life. Good sex is characterized by a profound sense of tenderness. And I loved that particular section a lot. And I thought that, you know, this is certainly a book that I'm interested in reading if it has, you know, these sorts of quotes coming from it. Um, I definitely agree with your first premise. There's definitely a presupposition here. But I thought it was important to just sort of look at what's going on in the theologian world, which, by the way, is still somewhat male-dominated. That is changing. Hallelujah. But you get a lot of male perspective. You find yourself um, in theology, and I've, I've taken other courses as well at the graduate level, and often there are very few females in the room. That is changing. But um, so often you do have to sort of go into these works saying, okay, where are the nuggets that I can agree with? So when I criticize the rest or critique the rest, it's at least fair. So that was going to be one of the things I pointed out as well um, that I liked from this particular chapter. Uh, Bree, is there anything you wanted to point out? Well, yeah, I think I had a little bit of a different impression of the book than, uh, than you did maybe. Um, I think that his larger argument it was actually surprising to me um, that it seems like he's drawing these strong parallels between Christianity and feminism, but specifically anti-pornography feminism and looking at the, the pornography wars of feminism. And um, it seemed like he is drawing these parallels in order to create a contrast with a more sex-positive Christian feminist uh, view of sex and pornography. Um, and so in the sections when he's talking about mutuality as the emphasis, he's pointing out that that's a shared emphasis um, in many uh, Christian discussions of uh, what makes positive sex or what makes good sex in that quote that, that you shared, um, as well as with the uh, anti-pornography feminists um, and, of course, anti-pornography feminists and Christians may often be, you know, the same people. Um, 
But he's pointing out that mutuality as a shared emphasis in order to uh, contrast it with the, the fantasies of pornography. And it seems as if his larger argument is uh, sort of more in favor of um, uh, kind of liberating ourselves to enjoy um, pornography in ways that are uh, sort of labeled as illicit, both by a, well, a traditional Christian perspective and a current Christian perspective, um, and as well in the same ways, he's pointing out, by the, the anti-pornography feminists in the, in the pornography wars. Um, and that argument um, contrast with mutuality as the marker of good sex is at, the same, at once sort of disturbing and appealing to me because, you know, of course, on the one hand, you don't want to say, no, mutuality is not the marker of good sex because obviously... Um, a consent is the touchstone and we're not going to have any healthy sexual ethic that's not based on consent, of course. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, it is possible that both the uh, Christian view and the feminist views that he's uh, aligning with each other and critiquing um, could have sort of a limited view of mutuality in some cases, um, so it's not it's not necessarily you know in, inherent that um, mutuality must uh, exclude but well mutuality in a monogamous relationship must exclude something like he talks specifically about masturbation and oral sex as, as things that have been uh, viewed as illicit and going against solely um, creating, the, the mutual pleasure um, and, and being focused on the selfish pleasures of, of, uh, of the flesh. Um, uh, but also in, in thinking about the fantasies of pornography um, or about uh, various sexual practices like, uh, well, like BDSM, as, as you see in Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, oh, and that's another criticism I have of Fifty Shades of Grey, that it does seem to link BDSM inextricably with uh, with misogyny and a, a sort of mental damage or trauma that's occurred, um, which I feel is probably not the case. <laughs> um, I think it is valid for uh, Arthur Milk, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, in Christians, feminists, in the culture of pornography to make some of these criticisms that he's making about the limitations of these sort of allied views in Christianity and feminism, um, I think part of that could be redefining exactly what egalitarianism and mutuality has to look like in good sex um, and returning to uh, you know, consent as the basis rather than just particularly san- particular sanctioned um, sexual actions or appearances, but that's, that's about it really. Um, yeah, I thought you hit on a good points that were brought up in this particular chapter uh, with the idea that there is a religious aspect to sex. And I love how he brought up the fact that 
this is an uncomfortable topic for many, not only Christians, but he added theologians to that, which I thought well, I thought is very true. Um, I actually had to do some research on what actually happens on the threshing room floor between Boaz and Ruth. What actually happened? I had to research that. And it was interesting how much um, scholars over the years and going way back into, you know, antiquity here, um, danced around the issue. You know, they didn't want to talk about sexual activity explicitly. As we moved forward in time, obviously, people talked a little bit more openly, but there is an uncomfortableness that he's calling to center stage. And I did like that. I like that he's saying, look, you know, we cannot be this uncomfortable with it. Here's all these people that have been talking about it. And that's one thing I really liked about this chapter is there were a lot of references to theologians specifically who have written and discussed this idea of sex as Christians and what that means. And so um, I kind of wanted to end here just because of that theological aspect. Um, and I certainly do call myself a feminist theologian. I definitely own that term, although I lean a little more towards some of the womanist and muharista uh, theologies as well. But it all comes out of feminist theology. Uh, and one thing that I just wanted to quote, and then I'll just her recommendations he really makes a strong point and you mentioned this marie about sex not being selfish that in order for it to be part of um our christian experience it's sort of the opposite of selfishness and i did really like that and he talked a lot about equality and what that means and and there was a lot of that in there as well and so i guess for me when i read something like this i to my initial reaction to 50 shades and i just want to record for any listeners i did not read the other two books and everyone keeps telling me well you have to read the other two books i'm like i just really don't want to um, i know maybe i should i just really don't want to um so i only read the first book and one of the things that i thought was missing was this mutuality it just seemed very one-sided like things were in my opinion and, and again i'm a survivor of but I just kept thinking Anastasia has things happening to her, happening upon her. There's these these things happening with her body, and she's you know it just seems to me very like it's not it didn't seem as mutual as maybe it did to other people. I don't know. That's my reaction. Uh, again, I come at this with the different lenses than other people maybe, but and that bothered me, and it really bothered me that it just seemed like things were being put upon her and happening to her and. You know, and, and so for me, it got me thinking about uh, sexuality and theology and all of that. So, um, Victoria, did you want to add anything before we do our recommendations? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay, so Victoria, if you could give your recommendations. Oh, okay. Um, I have two. Um, I, and the first is um, a criticism of the sex positivist movement that came out in 2005. It's a book by Ariel Levy called Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Raunch Culture. Um, and the, the ideas that I was talking about earlier that sex positivism doesn't quite work because of commercialism and because of the male gaze, um, those things are, are the center of Levy's argument. Um, she talks a lot about, um, girls gone wild culture and, and playboy culture and how um, not only are, are women being fed this line of, of kind of faux empowerment 
that makes them objects of male fantasy, but also that they're that they're paying to do it. That there's this sort of industry commodifying um, female empowerment in a in a sort of gross way. Um, it's a really fun, really approachable book. I give it to students a lot who are asking kind of feminist questions, but but scared of feminism as an idea. Um, so it's a it's a good conversation starter. That's my first recommendation. And the second um, was actually also released in 2005 and is a documentary called "The Education of Shelby Knox," um, which I, I use in my human sexuality seminar. Um, and will continue to use. And Shelby Knox is a young woman growing up in Lubbock, Texas, which at the time of the recording of the documentary um, has the highest teen pregnancy and STD rates in the entire country. Um, and Shelby Knox is campaigning against uh, abstinence-only education in her area. She runs up against some pushback, um, from particularly in the form of this one guy, um, uh, a pastor named Ed who calls himself Sex Ed. Promise, real, not making that up. Um, and, and he gives these kind of abstinence-only uh, church-centered messages to teenagers in the area. So the documentary follows her fight um, for more comprehensive sex education. And I love the documentary because um, it shows it, it's not just an us-versus-them church on one side, um, pro-sex teenagers on the other side thing. Um, these are primarily Christian teenagers who are for comprehensive sex education, and they have conversations about their faith, about the role it plays in their lives. Um, Shelby's parents, though they don't agree with her kind of sexual ethic, are incredibly supportive in Shelby as a person. So it, it brings a lot of um, nuance, I think, to the argument uh, that you don't see in other places. So that's my second recommendation. Thank you, uh, Marie. I have a book to recommend and two related blog posts. The book is actually not out yet. It's coming out in February. It's Diana Anderson's Damaged Goods. Diana is a, a blogger and a friend of mine. She blogs especially on purity culture. And in Damaged Goods, she explores a Christian sexual ethic that is based on consent. So it definitely uh, goes along with what we've been talking about here. So you should all look out for that in February. Um, the blog posts are from last month. Two uh, contrasting blog posts on Christian attitudes to BDSM. One comes from Sarah Bessie whose book, Jesus Feminist, was discussed in uh, episode 7.2 of our podcast. Um, and in her post uh, on sexualized violence uh, against women, um, she claims, quote, violence against women is epidemic and evil, and it's not to be mined for sexual pleasure, end quote. Um, and she equates that... Um, support of violence against women with uh, just sort of across the board with BDSM um, and says that anyone who is following Jesus as a Jesus feminist uh, must have this uh, same sort of approach to BDSM. Um, and I think this post is a good example of the kind of uh, the points about mutuality that Milk um, was addressing in Christians, feminists and the culture of pornography um, so saying that uh, sex that is not following the one 
set appearance of mutuality um, must not be good for ethical sex. And again, it's a, a fine must be uh, discussing um, the nuances of mutuality. In a contrasting post that disagrees with Bessie's post, a guest poster on Sarah Moon's blog on Pathios points out that Bessie's post makes both heteronormative and gender BDSM fantasies and interactions um, and argues that necessarily inherently dehumanizing, which is a word that Bessie uses a couple of times, um, to explore complexities of a person's humanity and sexual desires, even through BDSM, if that's the desire of the presenting partners in the sexual interaction. Um, so that post, again, goes along with what I see as being in Christian feminists in the culture of pornography, that um, there, there may be space for um, looking at what uh, the varieties uh, of interactions um, that mutualitarianism can possibly take in different kinds of uh, sexual interactions um, that, uh, for example, BDSM uh, encounters or interactions don't necessarily um, need to not be mutual or equal um, by nature. Um, so the, that that's a pair of contrasting blog posts, I think, goes along with our topics today. Okay, thank you. And my come from, uh, well, two of them come from the Oxford Handbook of Feminist Theology, uh, which I just recommend for anyone interested in feminist theology. This is a great overview. It didn't come out that long ago, so it's fairly new, and it has a ton of theologian authors that contributed. Um, the two articles that I'm about to mention are in this particular handbook, I guess is what they call it, uh, Doing a Theology from Disappeared Bodies, Theology, Sexuality, and the Excluded Bodies of the Discourses of theology. This talks a lot about how women who live in a culture or live in a situation where their body is property or mistreated in some way have a different take on theology. And all the conversation uh, surrounding, um, you know, the BDS mainstream, uh, what does that look like from uh, the perspective of someone who has survived that type of situation? And so I always want to be thinking about that. And maybe that's something that's personal for me, uh, but it does seem like others are thinking about that as well. And she talks about the biotechs of your body and things like that. And then the other one is, uh, oh, and I'm sorry, that article is by Marcella. I'm going to butcher the name, uh, Alsace Reed. And the second one is Globalization and Women's Bodies in Latin America. Both of these come out of the Muharista which is sort of a stem of feminist theology, but it's the Latin American one. And that's by uh, Maria Kristen uh, Ventura. And uh, she's actually becoming quite a voice in that particular uh, movement as well. And finally, if you're interested in just looking at scripture differently from more of a, um, just a totally different perspective as far as the male gaze and how that's present in the Bible and things like that, a really good book that helped me sort of open my eyes to looking at uh, passages and exegesis, Sisters in the Wilderness by uh, Dolores Williams. And I definitely recommend that. I'd, I'll never look at the story of Hagar the same. Um, and certainly these issues we've been talking about are brought up 
you know, this idea of sex and what that means and what did that mean for Hagar and Ishmael and all that. So um, those are my recommendations. And thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows or mine, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Farmer and Marie House, I'm Lisa Cordles. This is the final episode for our fall schedule, and we do apologize for the lack of a Christmas-themed episode uh, due to some scheduling difficulties. But we will be back in January and see you in the new year. Until then, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things love.